I just want to introduce myself. If I haven't met some of you, I know that there are some new, uh, new people each week, and I just want to uh, introduce myself. Uh, my name is Dan Boss, and um, I serve here uh, as the worship pastor and on leadership. Um, my wife, Serena, and I have four kids that you probably have to navigate around at some point um, after church. And uh, we've, been, we've been with King's Cross um, kind of since, since things kicked off about almost four years ago. And uh, it's been an awesome thing to have a front row seat, seeing God at work um, in this church and kind of drawing new people in and um, working in, in people's lives. So um, blessed to be here and excited to, to open God's word with you this morning. Continuing our look at um, Ecclesiastes, this morning we're going to be in chapter 4, and um, you know, I feel like every week we come into Ecclesiastes kind of scratching our heads and wondering like, how does this actually apply to my life? This is such a bizarre passage, how am I going to apply that to my life? And the more we dive into that and kind of understand what it means, the more I feel like it actually fits our context really well. There's so much that's like applicable and relevant to the, the themes of our day of kind of despair and depression in our world. And um, um, if you're anything like me, some of these themes have really um, kind of opened my eyes and hit home for me. So um, I just want to recap kind of where we've been last week. Obed was, um, was teaching out of the end of chapter 3 where it kind of talks about um, just the, the evil and the wickedness in our world and how it's infiltrated kind of every aspect of life, um, even the places of righteousness and wickedness, uh, even the places of righteousness, there is wickedness. Um, but we're born with an innate desire for justice, for things to be made right, for, for good to prevail. That's why so many movies have this plot that, that always ends with good triumphing over, over evil. We want justice, and, and Obed pointed out there's really not a whole lot of talk these days about judgment. A lot of justice, social justice, really popular idea these days, but there's not a whole lot of talk about judgment. But we know, as Christians, God is going to be judging everything. The righteous and the wicked will both stand before him. And as humans, um, we share the same fate with every other creature, with all, all the animals. Like, we live, we breathe, and we will die. And we will face judgment someday. Reminding ourselves, um, as chapter 3 wraps up, um, he says, So I saw that there was nothing better then that man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. So we, we, we struggle in this world, but we need to remember we have reasons to rejoice. Find something good to do and um, rejoice in it. So this morning we come into um, chapter 4. And um, as I was reflecting on this chapter and the, kind of the previous three chapters, um, it, it kind of struck me that Ecclesiastes in a lot of ways kind of feels like a journal entry of a man who has just really kind of reached the end of his rope. He's struggled. He's kind of had enough. Maybe he's slightly depressed or maybe mostly depressed. 
But he's reached the end of his rope in, in his life, and what we read is him kind of expressing how he feels. Like, he's expressing what it felt like in these situations, what life kind of feels like to him in these moments. It's kind of um, really similar to what we read um, throughout the Psalms, really. But Psalm 73 is a great example of this. It says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens, and they are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. Just like in this psalm, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is also really frustrated with what he sees in life. He's discontent with the evil and the oppression that he sees in, in life. And there's something about that discontentment and frustration that I think is really good. It's right. Um, he doesn't try to, to kind of gloss over the evil that he perceives in this world to gloss over or sugarcoat it. He calls it out. He names it. Um, one commentator wrote that Ecclesiastes is a book of exaggeration and extremes in order to show us the right path of life. And John Piper, a, a pastor, says that Ecclesiastes is like the book of Job. It's filled with bad theology on how to view life and God, but it's bad theology which is still inspired by God with the purpose of pointing us toward him. So, with that all in mind, I want to read today's passage, chapter 4, Ecclesiastes 4, and hear these words that are inspired by God for us today. Um, starting at verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all the toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there is no evil, or sorry, there's, there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unha unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together to keep warm, um, sorry. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. In verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth 
than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is vanity and a striving after wind. Well, let, me, let me pray as we uh, dive in together. Lord, we thank you for this book. Um, it's your word. And um, Lord, we thank you that it is sufficient for us this morning. I pray that as hard as it is sometimes to understand it, to wrap our minds around it and to apply it to our lives, I pray that you give us uh, your Holy Spirit this morning to help us do that. I pray that you'd speak to your people through your word this morning. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to I kind of look at four different themes um, as we go through this chapter on, on kind of what jumped out to me um, that applies to our life in, in our, um, our world today. The, the themes are oppression, contentment, community, and humility. And we're going to start right with a bang here. We're going to go into oppression. So let me read those first three verses um, in a slightly different translation. This is the New Living Translation. I think it's helpful at times just to, to, to hear things um, slightly different. It says, again, I observed all the oppression that takes place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. The oppressors have great power and their victims are helpless. So I concluded that the dead are better off than the living. But most fortunate of all are those who are not yet born, for they have not seen all the evil that is done under the sun. Right from the start, we see some of the darkest kind of places in the whole Bible. One of the commentators I wrote said that um, verses 2 and 3 there are the saddest part of the whole book. Um, it's, it's kind of crazy. The preacher observes that in chapter 3 that the evil is so great in this world that it's just better off not to live at all. And, and actually, the preacher in Ecclesiastes isn't the only one who stated this idea. Jesus actually had a similar declaration when he, he was talking about Judas, his betrayer. In Mark 14, he says, But woe to the man who is by, uh, woe to the man that by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for him that um, that man, for if he had not, sorry, it would be better for that man if he had not been born. Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. All right, well, when you put it into context of Judas, it kind of makes more sense. I mean, Judas was, was a bad, bad dude. And, but when we think about it a little bit more deeper, we all are also kind of having that same sin and, and brokenness and betrayal within us. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We have this same sin and betrayal within us, and we see it in the world. You know, a lot of times we, we don't 
see it or we don't treat the evil in this world with that much weight. It's easy to brush past kind of so much that we, we are inundated with day in and day out. But we cannot forget that our holy God is unable to accept it like we do. Uh, one commentator, Derek Kidner, uh, gets to the heart of this tension. He says, If the preacher's gloom strikes us as excessive, we may need to ask whether our more cheerful outlook springs from hope and not complacency. We're surrounded by a world full of sin and brokenness, and we can sometimes not even see it clearly. We've become so complacent and callous to it. Ecclesiastes is just pointing this out in a very kind of dramatic and extreme way that indeed oppression and corrupting power is everywhere. And I think almost in a way of kind of just shaking us out of our complacency, it's, it's shock um, wakes us up a little bit when we read that it's better for us to not even have life and to experience some of the evil in this world. So what do we do? How do we respond to this? Breakfast food, right? <laughs> no, no, no. We don't just throw up our hands and say, well, there's nothing we can do. The evil is too great. There's nothing we can do about it. We need to read Ecclesiastes along with the rest of Scripture. And when we look to Christ, we see he came into this world to redeem. He came to, to, to free people from oppression and sin. And if we look to the story of the Good Samaritan in John 10, Jesus concludes with this command for us to go and do likewise. We're called to fight oppression with compassion and love by the power and in the name of Jesus, all the while with an understanding like we find in Psalm 127 that unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. I remember a couple years ago, a good friend of mine, Ben Patterson, who, who had just preached in August, he, he came a couple years ago and preached on prayer, kind of what that means for us and how do, how do we, as Christians, develop a life of prayer. He asked us a question that really rung true with me. He said, do you really think with all the evil and all, the, all that's wrong in this world, do you think that you can really do anything to fix it apart from God? I believe our first reaction to fight for justice should be to pray, to call upon the God of justice to fight for justice in this world. Prayer is the work to call upon um, God and ask him to, to be at work in this world is not just doing nothing. It's not sitting back and, and sitting on our hands. We also need to work for justice. As Jesus says in that passage with the Good Samaritan, go and do likewise. But we must be people that are fighting first on our knees in prayer. Um, I've been working on uh, memorizing a few psalms on my way to work in the mornings on my drive. And one of the psalms I was working on was... Psalm 103, and this one line kind of spoke to me just directly about this idea of God being a God of justice. Psalm 103, I think it's verse 5 or 6, it says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. What, what's being referred to there is the Exodus, God freeing his people from oppression and slavery. And Jesus 
kind of right along with that, identifies himself um, in that narrative. He says, um, early on in his ministry, he walks into a synagogue, opens the scroll to Isaiah 61, and he reads this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. And we are called to, to, to share in this ministry of justice with, with Christ, but we can't do it without him. Um, I was recently listening to a podcast by uh, Pastor John Mark Comer, and he made this distinction that really helped me kind of understand how we do this as Christians, how we go about fighting for justice. He said, when we fight for justice or we fight oppression in any way, big or small, in this world, we need to be aware of kind of the spirit that's motivating us while we do this. Um, you know, fighting for social justice causes are really popular in our world today, and uh, that's a great thing, but many times they are, um, when you look deeper, they're animated out of a spirit of anger, even hatred, and kind of like this fleshly desire to, to make things right and to, to kind of justify, um, justify things. But we as Christians, um, he said, we, we need to fight for justice, even linking arms with the world and those who are um, fighting for these causes, but we need to do so being animated by the spirit of Christ and out of a spirit of love for God and our, our neighbor, not out of the flesh and out of anger. So I was, I was trying to think of as an example of this um, in my own life, and I was thinking about parenting my kids, um, which I feel like you could probably pull a parenting example for almost any biblical principle out there, but um, I was thinking about uh, my oldest son, Sage, Say he does something that disrespects me and, and kind of dishonors my name. So I have, I have a choice in this, um, in this moment. How am I going to react? Am I going to react out of um, just getting really, you know, ticked off at him? Come on, like, I provide everything for you. You have a place to sleep. You have food. I, I you know, give you money for these different things. And he just kind of, um, you know, shrugged his shoulders and walked away. Or, you know, am I motivated by trying to create in him, um, you know, a healthy kind of sense of um, right and wrong that, you know, he, he grows up to be a respectable adult where teachers and employers want, to, want him to be around and he's thoughtful and kind. So the, the end goal may be the same, that I want Sage to be a good human being when he grows up. But the means I use to get there can come from a very different place. On the one hand, I might be filled with anger and shame and control and kind of manipulation, kind of operating out of my flesh, or it's gonna be filled with the spirit of Christ, with the fruit of the spirit to bring about those same goals, the same end. So we need to check our motivation for fighting injustice, and we need to look to the God who holds ultimate justice instead of operating out of our flesh. And this, this kind of concept makes me think of this um, hymn by Martin Luther. A mighty fortress is our God. A reliance on the spirit rather than striving out of our flesh. 
I'm going to read this, uh, this verse. I think it's verse 2. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. So that, that line, uh, Lord Sabaoth, his name, that means the Lord of hosts, which refers to God as the one who has the hosts of heaven, the armies of heaven at his service. This is who we need to be calling on to work against the oppression and the evil in our world. All right, so let's move on in this, in this chapter, um, verses f- uh, 4 through 8. We're going to look at what it means for us to be content. Um, let me read these verses for us. It says, Then I saw all the toil and all the skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. I, I think the preacher really kind of nails it here in verse 4 that there's so much of our, our work and our toil that comes from an envy of our neighbor. I, I can think of my own life and the times that I've been motivated to, to work and succeed and how that is kind of tainted by this idea of envy and wanting more to, to kind of keep up with the Joneses. Of course, social media is a huge help with that. If you noticed, a couple weeks back in our community group, we had a, a really good discussion on what it means to, to work, to work from a, a, a godly point of view. What drives us to work? And the conclusion we came to is that we need to have a correct kind of thinking, a correct perspective on our work. We need to, um, you know, God has, has given us good gifts and um given us ways that we can serve him with with jobs but we need to serve him we need to not serve ourselves only and keeping our motivation for our work needs to be you know kind of consistently coming back and aligned with God's purposes and his mission not to our selfish ambition or our envies envy of our neighbors um This one uh, scholar, R. Kent Hughes, points out that there are two different extremes regarding our work. One, toiling out of an all-consuming drive from envy. uh, Or two, a complacency and an idleness that is self-cannibalizing. So there's two extremes described in this passage. If we don't work, we become idle. Or if we overwork out of envy, either way, we we become the center of our lives when we miss the idea of contentment. I think it's helpful um, to, to hear verse 5 there, paraphrased uh, a bit. This is from the message. It says, The fool sits back and takes it easy. His sloth is slow suicide. 
the preacher points out these two extremes, um, working and toiling out of an insatiable desire and like an envy, or a complacent life of sloth. Both sides of the same coin, but the end goal is contentment. Just like what the Apostle Paul says, I've learned to be content in every situation. He had much, and then he had nothing. He'd learned to be content in every situation. Verse 6 gives us the goal. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. I remember um, months ago reading this, uh, reading Ecclesiastes, just reading through it before we had started studying it. I remember this verse just jumped out to me because I just, it resonated with me. It's just so true. Um, don't judge me here, but I'm, <laughs> we were uh, recently flipping through Netflix and uh, found this, um, maybe you've seen it, this documentary on Britney Spears. <laughs> and it was like really kind of eye-opening because, you know, it's, it's just so sad. She's got like paparazzi around her all the time, anything she does, just surrounded uh, by paparazzi. But there's this scene later on where they like arrange for her to go off and like drive her car for 20 minutes out in the country somewhere. Um, no paparazzi or camera people around. And it's just this amazing moment for her of like freedom and peace and quiet. Um, and they, you know, had to arrange it all in secret beforehand. And it just made me think, you know, all the wealth and the success that the two handfuls that she has had kept her from quietness. It made me think, you know, Brittany would probably uh, trade in very much of her two handfuls in order to just have some quiet and peace. Again, R. Kent Hughes sums up these verses this way. He says, the beautiful comparison is built on a double contrast. Quietness is a person contrasted with toil and striving. The quiet person is peaceful and composed rather than always striving for more. He or she is satisfied with what they have already. The person with two handfuls is a two-fisted consumer always grabbing as much as they can and always grasping for more. But less, uh, sometimes less is more. And the quiet person has found the right balance. They accept what God has given them. Contentment with whatever you have um, is better than a frantic envy for more. We, we see this sort of idea throughout scripture. It's better to have less and be content with what you have. The world is turned upside down in the kingdom of God, where the rich and the powerful are often brought down low, and God raises up the poor and the weak for his purposes. Um, see this verse in, in James 2, this verse describes this beautifully. It says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Uh, Hebrews 13 Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Motivated by um, kind of the same idea, there's uh, many Jesuit priests in the Catholic Church that take what's called a vow of poverty. And this vow is, is really about living simply and not having 
personal property and holding kind of all things in common, just like what we saw in the church in Acts. The believers were living together. They were providing for each other's needs, selling personal property to help those in need. So, how do we apply this? If we're living on mission with Jesus, how does our lifestyle and our spending actually reflect that? If we believe that following Christ is not about accumulating more, uh, more wealth or possessions, how is our lifestyle actually reflecting that? I once heard it said, we all know money can't buy happiness, but we all want to try. So how might, how might you live in the kingdom of God rather than being directed by the kingdom of this world? How can you live with less and live more simply in order to, uh, to live with Christ? I know Christians um, who have chosen a path of downward mobility over gaining more purpose of living on mission with Jesus. And this is something that goes against everything in our world, everything that the world is telling us, but I think it's something that we need to consider God calling us to. Are there things that we need to set aside for the purpose of our, our mission with Christ? All right, so let's keep moving. Verses 9 through 12, they point to our next uh, kind of theme, and, and that is community. I'm going to read these verses here. It says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will not withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. You know, these verses are pretty well known. You've probably seen them on like little little cards of, you know, Christian bookstore stuff. Um, and they seem pretty self-explanatory uh, that two are better than one. Threefold cord is not easily broken. But I think it's easy to kind of, um, to think about this in the context of marriage and think that's the only purpose or like um, a relationship that Christ is, you know, Christ is for sure honored in a, in a godly marriage, and this is kind of proof of that. Um, but I think it's actually for all of us who are followers of Jesus. Um, one, one scholar wrote that the, the idea of this buddy system is not just for school field trips and swimming in the ocean. It's God's plan for our life and our service to him. This, I think, is a great reminder to us of the importance of relationships and community within the body of Christ. Jesus' own ministry follows this when he sends out his disciples two by two. He also explains that in, in the rest of the kind of New Testament church follows this idea that a testimony or complaint within the church should be brought by two people. We need others in our life, and we get knocked down because life is hard. And we need others to help pick us back up. The children of God were never meant to work alone. Sooner or later, we need someone near us to help us and to preach the gospel again into our lives, to support us through prayer. 
I think, you know, as we're talking about our community groups and our new community groups, this is just a great way for us to kind of open yourself up to that sort of relationship. You need others, but also, also um, others need you. It's not just what you can get out of church or a community group. It's also what you can pour into others. Others may need to hear from you or to receive support from you. And if you don't show up, others lose out on that. I believe we were designed this way because our God, at his very essence, is community and love. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's nature as the Trinity exists within the context of community and love. How do we, how do we think we can do it alone? In this last section, um, it's a story about humility. In the last, um, last section, we read um, the story of a young man, poor but wise, and is contrasted with this other man who is an old king, but he's foolish. The ESV, uh, I found that ESV a little hard to understand in this section, but I'm going to read from the NIV in this, this um, verse 13 through 15. It says, Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have become, uh, the youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born into poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. I think this story comes as a warning. Many of us uh, think that old age and gray hair comes wisdom, and, and it does sometimes. Now, I have some gray hair. But um, we see in this passage that's actually not, not necessarily true. Wisest people, the wisest people are the ones who listen to counsel and accept correction regardless of their age. And I think it's also an encouragement to young people that God, God has great value in using them for his um, kingdom work. The important thing is that we're able to hear and accept others' counsel and correction in our lives. Are we humble enough to accept that? I think it's God's design um, for the church that as a family, we have others around us who are of different ages to teach us wisdom and humility, both from young and old. Um, I love the way uh, John Calvin kind of summarizes the whole of Christ the Christian life this way. He says, simply a teacher, a teachable follower of Christ. Simply a teachable follower of Christ is what a Christian is. We need to be teachable, moldable by others and by the Holy Spirit. So how do you open yourself up to relationship, to submit to one another, and um, to listen to the counsel of the wise, to seek out wise advice in your life? You need to look for people that are older and wiser, people who've lived life that we haven't um, yet lived. And also, be open to those young voices in our lives who might um, have new ideas. Um, so I want to close with a prayer um, that has really ministered to me in my life and just use it for us to, um, to have some time to reflect kind of on our lives in these different areas of our life. How do we fight oppression in this world? How do we live contently, in humility, 
and live more committed to community. So let's pray this prayer together and then we'll, we'll continue to, to reflect together. Lord, I give myself completely to you, God. Assign me to your place, to my place in your creation. Let me suffer for you and give me the work that you would have me do. Give me many tasks or have me step aside while you call others. Put me forward or humble me. Give me riches or let me live in poverty. I freely give all that I am and all that I have to you. And now, Holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. Would you use me for your glory? Amen. I want to invite you to just take some time. Um, that prayer is going to be on the screen. And we'll just leave it there to prompt you as you reflect and as you uh, pray for these different areas of your own life. Josh will, uh, will lead us soon. Thank you.